This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM. On the show today, we had Ben Eltham from New Matilda come in to talk about federal politics. Then we had Belkis Ville, who's a senior Iraq researcher at Human Rights Watch, and she joined me in the studio to talk about the current human rights concerns and issues that surround the conflict in Iraq at the moment. Then we chatted with actors Dan Spielman and Sharina Clanton. They're currently appearing in the MTC's production of Macbeth. Finally, we had a chat with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he discussed with us his essay in The Monthly called Grandfathering the Australian Dream. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. We'll be speaking with Ben Eltham from New Matilda about federal politics. Now, Ben, let's just just jump right right into it. Let's just dive into the pool that is the Canberra Lake of federal oh, politics. the swamp, you mean? Yeah, the, well, I, I was being a little bit generous, <laughs> Lake wasn't Burley I? Lake Burley-Griffin is uh, not, the, not the nicest sort of water body, actually. No, probably not, but it's nice to walk around. It is nice to walk Bill around. Bill likes to run around it too, I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, as I mentioned at the top of the show... Um, We have had the Finkel Review and it's been delivered on Friday, last Friday, and we've had a great deal of um, discussions and uh, backbencher um, airing of views uh, in particular, Mr Tony Abbott, our wonderful former Prime Minister, and we also saw that it was presented at COAG uh, to state ministers and they all had some, um, you know, interesting things to say and uh, and also repeated the same slogan, which was, the devil is in the detail, which is kind of a little bit annoying, isn't it? Is the devil in the detail, Ben? Yes, it is. And yes, do we is. have the detail? Because apparently we don't have the modelling behind it. No, we it. don't have the detail. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Great, great. <laughs> Off to a good start. Yeah, totally. Um, so um, as we talked about last week, the Finkel review into the security and the stability of Australia's energy system, um, note that it doesn't have anything to say about climate in its title. Uh, the Finkel review was handed down on Friday, delivered by Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, uh, Australia's um, you know current top boffin um, and a fairly distinguished fellow, uh, top scientist, also an entrepreneur, uh, and uh, he was tasked with going away and looking at what the hell's gone wrong with our national electricity system. Uh, and uh, he's come back with the Finkel Review, and it's a blueprint, as he calls it, for a, uh, a more robust electricity system that will also reduce emissions. Uh, and how he proposes to do it is a thing called the Clean Energy Target, which is a kind of a certificate system. It's another kind of artificial market, a little bit like the Renewable Energy Target. It creates certificates for sufficiently clean energy sources Mm. that can then be retired by energy retailers. And he claims that this will be the cheapest and the most stable way to reform Australia's energy system to get new generation into the market, but also to reduce emissions. But emphasis there on sufficiently clean, because we're not talking about zero emissions energy, completely clean energy. We're talking about... Yes. Yes, that's right. So uh, this is basically a political report, not a scientific report. And I think that's the most important thing to understand about it. So the first thing to say is the so-called clean energy target features lots of not very clean energy. Mm. Uh, So you would have thought that clean energy would be zero emissions, but you would be wrong. It's actually a baseline that the government is going to set. Finkel doesn't actually recommend uh, a level of pollution that would equal 
clean, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. It is a bit disturbing. Uh, we don't even have that definition. Yeah. Uh, the other really interesting point is that uh, the way that he thinks that the clean energy target will work uh, is that it will only reduce Australia's emissions by around about 26 to 28% in line with our Paris Climate Agreement commitments. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't meet the Paris commitments because everybody knows that the energy system being the dirtiest part of Australia's economy because mm-hmm. full of coal yes. uh, has to go much quicker than the rest of the economy, much deeper cuts to emissions. So actually by only making this the same amount as Paris, it's actually not meeting Paris. So that's actually a really big a really big thing. Um, and this is why the environmental groups are actually quite critical of this report. Um, and the final thing is, you know, I just think he's got his numbers wrong. I think mm. the cost assumptions for uh, renewable technology are just way too pessimistic. You know, if we're looking at the way that uh, solar and even wind, the cost of those technologies is declining so rapidly uh, that, in fact, I think that it's it's really quite absurd, some of the projections that he's made. And, of course, we'd like to get into the detail of the projections and the modelling, but we can't because the modelling hasn't been released. No, and uh, and that's something that uh, Senator Nick Xenophon has t- talked about this morning is, well, I'm not going to um, t- say anything yet because I, I don't know the modelling, but it doesn't look right to him, doesn't look right to you. And you've, uh, in your piece in New Matilda, have highlighted a particular graph, um, which is quite revealing on page 93 of the report. Um, and it it really is disturbing. I just don't think it's at all realistic because if anyone is interested, check out Ben's uh, article. You can just look at his um, Twitter, Ben Altham, and, and see the link there. But, I mean, he projects out to 2050 to look at what he thinks the energy mix is likely to be if it's business as usual, if there's a clean energy target, or if there's an emissions intensity scheme. And coal still plays a huge role in 2030. Um, if it's business as usual, it's about 47% uh, would be like black coal, then you've got 14% brown coal. That's still, you know, what are we, 13 years away? Yeah. That's really, as you're saying, doesn't reflect how the industry is moving and also how even energy um, and coal generators are moving away from coal themselves. No, it doesn't even reflect the last five years. We've seen nine coal plants close, close, shut in the last five years. Why are they shutting? because it's not economic for them to operate. You know, we don't have a carbon price anymore in this country, so uh, there's no more subsidies for renewables, really, apart from the RET, which is just about finished in Mm. 2020. Why are they closing? Because they're not making money, you know. And so to to claim as he does, in fact, one of the bizarre things about what he claims is that under the clean energy target that he models, there'll be more coal under his scheme in 2050 than there would be if we do nothing, which... (laughs) To me, it seems bizarre, actually. Well, Cloud how cuckoo on land. Earth? Yeah. What, where is that going to come from? Where are we going to build some more coal plants? and? Presumably, or keep the current ones going yeah, until 2050 them. for three decades. Amazing. All the while, of course, renewables will be getting cheaper and cheaper. So, I mean, at some point, it becomes cheaper for renewables to, to be built right now than it does to operate any other existing form of energy. And at that point, it really is game over yeah. for everything else that's not as cheap as solar, basically. And I think um, the Finkel Review's got it wrong here. Um, and, you know, I, I think when the modelling comes out, uh, it'll be shown to be wrong. Mm. Well, I mean, this was meant to be the, the, the document that would give a 
impartial blueprint for everyone to see this is how we have a, an energy mix, a sustainable energy mix into the future, which would move towards, you know, our climate targets. Because as you say, we've, the ret is, is finishing. We need something to replace it that's viable and actually going to do the trick. I mean, like the one of the interesting things that uh, that some people have said is that this is supposed to, um, you know, reset the debate. Do you think this is really going to do much for where you know where this energy debate already is? No, I don't. And the reason is because if you give the chief scientist the job of crafting a political compromise, I don't think those are the skills with which the chief scientist is best endowed. He should be given the job of coming up with the technical report. Mm. What is the best solution? with regards to the science. Now, this is clearly not that because it doesn't take into account Australia's Paris commitments. It doesn't take into account climate science, which basically says we need to decarbonise as quickly as possible. You know, and yes, there is a political problem in this country about energy, but let's be pretty frank about where that problem is coming from. It's coming from the right wing of the Liberal Party. So in order to come up with an energy compromise that keeps the Tony Abbotts of the Liberal Party happy, uh, you know, that this is what Finkel has, has crafted. But, you know, I think we're already seeing that the right wing of the Liberal Party is not going to be happy with this compromise no. because for them there is only really one true belief and that is let it burn. So, you know, I don't, I don't think this is going to be the compromise that people are looking for. No, it won't. And, I mean, Tony Abbott has said that this is, you know, he's already talking carbon taxes again because it's obviously his favourite phrase in the <laughs> world. <laughs> Just can't let it go. Um, you know, it's this is isn't something that's going to go away. Um, the coalition, the Liberals, are meeting this morning to discuss yep. it. Uh, interestingly, Julie Bishop was talking about clean energy and the importance of that this morning when she responded. So at least some people are, you know, giving some vocal positive response. Look, there's a, a, a huge desire for a compromise after the combat of the last decade, you know, the bitter carbon wars that we've encountered in this country. I think everyone would like for there to be bipartisanship on this issue, but mm. the reality is I just don't think there is going to be. Now, Tony Abbott for once is actually right. He's saying this is a kind of a carbon tax because it, it imposes a shadow price on carbon emissions. Now, he's actually correct there. I mean, that is absolutely what the clean energy target will do just as an emissions intensity scheme would do, just as basically any scheme which looks mm. to limit Australia's emissions must do. I mean, there's no getting around it. We have to burn less carbon. And uh, any, other, any other scenario really is denial. And, and I think that's the sad thing about the Finkel Review. It's another episode in Australia's long-running history of climate denial. Indeed. And uh, let's now move to uh, another topic that has... well really gripped people and it was floated quite a while ago but it's now rearing its head again and this is uh, citizenship debates and tests uh, to you know, as to whether we allow certain people in based on their level of patriotism and uh, and English language skills and Prime Minister Turnbull is is actually going to be giving a speech today a national security update uh, which I'm sure will say very little because as you know why would you give away all your national security secrets in Parliament, um, but he will be setting the tone and one of the things he's reported to be saying uh, is that we should make no apology for asking those who seek to join our Australian family to join us as Australian patriots. Ben, are you a patriot? Um, 
Oh, Amy. <laughs> it's the last <laughs> the refuge of the scoundrel, isn't it, patriotism? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're not wearing an Australian flag draped around you, so I think you're probably not. I, I am not. Look, uh, there are many things that, that I believe in uh, and I have many, many, <clears throat> many joyful thoughts about Australia as a nation, but... Uh, my my views on Australian nationality are complex and sometimes conflicted, <laughs> and I think that any thinking citizen would also have the same views about his or her country. Because Indeed. let's face it, not everything about Australia is great. There are some things that are manifestly not great about this country, about the way we treat certain groups within our country, for example. So you know, I think um, the idea that we should uh, demand patriotism of people um, coming to our country. I, I think it's actually the wrong test. What we should demand is uh, adherence to the, the rules and laws of our country um, and some basic commitment to the democracy that they'll be joining. Um, and we already do that with our citizenship test. You know? We do. Um, so uh, I think this is yeah, you know yet more security theatre, as mm. they sometimes call it in the business, you know, uh, it's like Tony Abbott liked to have press conferences in the bunker at, at ASIO. You know, he liked to pose in front of situation maps. He liked to have lots of flags at his press conferences. <laughs> Similarly, Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton are always talking about these kind of things, you know, strengthening the, the security, having more stringent tests for citizenship. Um, you know, does it actually make Australia more secure? I think it doesn't, actually. It probably makes Australia less secure. Indeed. And one of the things that uh, Minister Dutton is seeking at the moment is discretionary powers to be able to reject uh, decisions on citizenship applications that are made by administrative, uh, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal if he thinks it's not in the national interest for a certain person to become a citizen. Now, given that um, there is the whole point about separating government from the judiciary, just a minor detail. Um, do you think that this is something which will even pass and should pass? Well, I hope it doesn't pass because uh, this is removing judicial oversight from this very important area of Australian law. So, you know, I thought one of the points about what makes Australian values so wonderful is <laughs> that we believe in the rule of law. We believe in the separation of powers between the judiciary and the executive. And this, of course, removes the judiciary's oversight um, and vests even more power in one person, the Minister for Immigration and Citizenship, who already has extraordinary powers uh, as part of his, uh, his ambit. You know, the Migration Act gives the Immigration Minister almost life and death power over uh, asylum seekers, for example. Um, he can approve or, or, or send back uh, asylum seekers really at the stroke of a pen. So um, the idea that the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is some kind of uh, bureaucratic kind of decision-making body that is hampering the Immigration Minister from making the decisions he needs to, I think, is wrong and it's dangerous, actually. It is dangerous. It's um, the thin end of the wedge, as they say on Yes, Minister. Um, oh, well, the wedge is pretty thick now if we're talking about <laughs> migration and asylum seeker law. I mean, for 15 years, the wedge has been widening very, very 
gradually. I mean, it could be a pie. Maybe it's not a wedge anymore. Let's think about some of the things we've done in the name of stopping the boats. For example, we've excised most of the islands off the coast of Australia from our migration zone. Mm. So, we've kind of basically removed the sovereignty of the country that we claim to be protecting the sovereignty of. Oh, I've just hit the microphone <laughs> with my gesturing. That's I'm getting animated. Getting, he's here. getting passionate. Look at this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is another example of the sort of creeping governmentality or the creeping executive authority mm. that, that seems to accompany uh, immigration debates wherever they go. It is disturbing. And just finally, Ben, I, uh, as I do every time this, um, this happens, we had the Queen's birthday uh, yesterday. Elizabeth herself. And as you know, we have uh, the Australian Honours released twice a year. And once again, ridiculously, women are significantly underrepresented. Very much so. And particularly women from the community who do a lot of unpaid labour and community work above and beyond what is expected of them. And they're also not reflected here at just 30%. Uh, what can we do, Ben, to change this ridiculous trend that has been happening for five to ten years at least, even longer? Well, I, I don't know, actually, Amy. I'm not really across what the honours system, how that, how that works, who nominates. Anyone can nominate, yeah, right? Yeah, anyone can. Who decides them? Well, let me tell you, uh, there is a bit of a gender imbalance on this Australian Honours Council. I'm shocked. Shocked to shock. hear that. Yeah, yeah. A- amazing. An unconscious bias just may creep through if you have, you know, about 13% women on your council. Um But, you know, one of the things that I think is particularly um, important is, and if you look at the, uh, the latest stats, men nominate men in very high proportions and women nominate men in high proportions. Women are also nominating women in very high proportions. So what will actually change is that if men nominated women as much as they nominated each other, we would actually potentially see gender balance. Well, I, you know, I can only encourage the men out there who listen to Triple R <laughs> to go and nominate some people Be for a champion. Australian honours. I mean, um, I don't know about you, Amy, but I, I find these meaningless ribbons to be rather pointless myself. I, I don't necessarily have place too much stock in uh, the Australian honours list. Um, I know. Well, if you go through history, there have been some fairly nefarious characters to have been bestowed with these uh, these betokens and jewels. So, Well, it is. it raises a point, which is, and this is why I think there is disparity, is because it's people generally, but not always, but often awarded for doing their job that they're already remunerated for very well. And, uh, and really, the Australian Honours was set up to recognise those who go above and beyond what they are expected to do uh, in society in their, in their employment. I don't think that's true. They, they were a sort of, uh, they were successful to the old gongs which were knighthoods and so Whitlam got rid of the knighthoods and he turned them into these kind of civil honours which is I agree a much better system than the old sort of knighthoods where you, you know if you're a top public servant you got to be called sir somebody or other um, but you know I think that they still to me smack of a kind of uh, a feudal hangover from the from the days when monarchs bestowed honours upon their uh, you know uh, very great you know, oh, I don't know. I, it, it does my head in on us. I just really find I can see them really Ben's annoying. Brain exploding yeah, yeah. right now into a million pieces. For once, I'm lost for words. Yeah, I must say. it's quite amazing. I think yeah. I've just opened the can of worms. So there. Um, do away with them all, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah, let's just get yeah. rid of them. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> and and then let's just institute a republic, and then we'll be done. I, I would like to, I would like a republic, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, um, Elaine de Baton talks about how we need more honours. You know, we need to give away more of these meaningless gongs so that people strive for uh, social merit rather than just money all the time, <laughs> which I, I think, you know, this is quite a sort of left-field kind of approach to it. But uh, myself, I feel that, you know, the intrinsic rewards to doing good things should be reward enough. Mm, absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. Now, Ben, I'm going to let you go and uh, have a, an awesome day. Thanks maybe, for coming Maybe I need in. a herbal tea this morning, not a coffee, you know, like just something to calm <laughs> no, me no. down. He's going to need some peppermint <laughs> right now. Just there's, Don't worry, Ben, the kitchen's just down there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. That was Mr. Ben Alpha. He is National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. You're listening to 3RRR, this show, Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And uh, would just like to mention uh, after our discussion on the Australian honours topic that uh, we certainly don't believe that they're meaningless uh, and that they don't recognise the important contribution of volunteers. Um, that's definitely not what uh, what I believe, um, at least. And uh, I just want to let anyone know who may have um, been offended at all that uh, we certainly wouldn't want to and are not undercutting the amazing work that volunteers in our community do and that are recognised for that through the honours process. Um, so I just want to put that caveat there and and just make sure that uh, if anyone did um, take it that way and, and we very much uh, apologise if that's the case, um, that certainly the most amazing people in our society um, are those who give their time um, and volunteer willingly to do amazing work and risk their lives for us. Um, so thank you to those people who do that amazing work. It means a lot to us um, as Triple R being a volunteer broadcasting uh, community itself. We know and understand just how important volunteering is you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM, and I'm very, very pleased and uh, excited to have with us an international guest, Belkis Ville, who is Senior Researcher, Senior Iraq Researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. And, uh, and Belkis is actually based largely in Iraq and uh, has been investigating human rights abuses in the region. Um, she was also the Yemen and Kuwait researcher uh, for a time. And so she brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise to our discussion today. Thanks so much, Belkis, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you because um, it's such a unique insight that you are able to provide given that you have this firsthand experience and knowledge of what's happening in Iraq. Uh, often in Australia, it seems like we're very far removed, not only physically but mentally, from what's actually happening over there and that uh, and that Australia is involved to some extent in this. Um, and obviously, we have been involved in Iraq uh, since the war began in 2003. So, I just want to talk. Um, first of all, the reason why you're here in Melbourne is because you're giving um, a lecture at the Melbourne Law School tomorrow night at uh, 6.30 till 7.30 and it's it's entitled Abuses in the Fight Against ISIS. Um, so we're talking about Islamic State um, and one of the, I guess, the key parts of this uh, talk, I'm, I'm presuming, and also what we're going to be discussing is the fact that 
it's not necessarily human rights abuses perpetrated by ISIS alone. Um, there are multiple actors in this conflict in the Battle of Mosul and it's, you know, the human rights abuses are occurring on all sides. I mean, let's just start with that aspect in terms of the, the Battle of Mosul, which has started in about October 2016, why or how did that eventuate? First of all, maybe we need some context because um, some of us may not even uh, know about that as being now a key battleground. But um, is this kind of the home of Islamic State in terms of what, where they set themselves down? And, and who, when, why did this kind of conflict come about? Um, well, let me let me try and give give that context, and I think it's very important to understand that today in Iraq and in Syria we have ISIS actually because of histories of um, human rights abuses and and the the campaign of abuse that mostly Sunni Arabs suffered it was one of the real push factors in driving young men to join uh, the Islamic State. So. In 2003, you had Saddam's Sunni government fall and instead you had a Shia government come to power in Baghdad. With that, Shia fighters took over the army and Shia militias, many that had been resident in Iran um, and persecuted by Saddam's regime, actually came back. And these groups started carrying out this campaign of abuse against Sunni Arabs, a wave of enforced disappearances, arbitrary detention, executions, torture... And, and the Sunni Arab population stood up eventually and said enough is enough. And that came in the form of public protests, mainly in 2013, um, but also in what was first Al-Qaeda in Iraq, carrying out bombing campaigns of, against these fighters and against American presence in Iraq. And then that morphed into, into ISIS. When ISIS announced the creation of its caliphate that was in the city of Mosul. So Mosul in Iraq really is the center of ISIS. It's where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi stood up in mosque and said that this was the creation of the caliphate. And in Syria, you've got now the battle for Raqqa. Raqqa is... Um, in many ways, more the epicenter of ISIS these days, but both cities are really uh, essential to the to the battle and and to getting rid of ISIS as a group that has ter- territorial control. And and as you said, the the battle to retake Mosul began in October. It's the last main city that is under ISIS control in Iraq. There are some smaller areas still under ISIS control, but this is really the final stand when it comes to Iraq. And the city of Mosul is split in half um, with the Tigris River in between. And East Mosul was taken back by January um, by a mix of Iraqi armed forces and uh, a strong amount of coalition support, a coalition led by the US, but with a very strong presence of Australia. And since February, we've had the battle for West Mosul. Much of West Mosul has actually already been retaken. And now we're in really the last stage of the battle, which is centered around the old city um, in Western Mosul along the river. Right. And in terms of the coalition forces involvement, I mean, a lot of people would presume that it's largely an airstrike kind of capacity or involvement. But are there actually other coalition troops on the ground supporting the Iraqi government forces? 
Absolutely. There are multiple um, boots on the ground, so to speak. American soldiers that I've seen at, I've seen at multiple air bases carrying out ground operations, mostly ground-fired munitions that they're firing into, into West, Western Mosul. I've seen uh, presence of Canadian forces, French forces. Um, so it's, it's definitely both a ground and aerial campaign that the coalition is waging. Right. And interestingly, um, in one of the Human Rights Watch reports recently, just from June 8, um, it mentions that the UN estimated that 200,000 civilians remain in the two square kilometre area in West Mosul's old city. Now, one of the things that has been a real issue is that civilians have been caught up in this battle. I mean, what are some of the things that have occurred on both sides that have really been, um, you know, highly dangerous for the civilians in the area? Well, we've seen that ISIS is very keen on using any advantage that they have. And one of the key advantages is large numbers of civilians sort of at their disposal to be used as essentially human shields. So when the Battle of Mosul was about to begin last summer, we already saw ISIS marching thousands of families north into Mosul with the intention already then of using them in the final stand as human shields. And as they've been pulling back out of certain neighborhoods that get retaken, they've pulled these families back with them. And and right now, the stories coming from inside the whole city are really horrific. So they've started welding people into basements. So 200 people welded into a basement. They've set up these metal... Um, uh, planks on roads so that if civilians try to flee, fighters can hear them and then snipers shoot the families. So in the last couple of days that I've been talking to families who just got out of places like the old city, the level of traumatization is so incredibly high because they saw snipers taking out family members as they were running. Um, and, and in many cases, especially with these people welded into basements, they simply can't, can't get out. And, you know, if the building gets hit by an airstrike, then, then that's it. It's shocking. <laughs> I don't really know what to say when we describe these kind of things, but it's important that we do because, you know, these are the people who are suffering, not us. I mean, what, what, what can we do from this far away? Um, I know that Australia, you have written a piece and you mentioned that when Donald Trump and Malcolm Turnbull um, came together recently that they did have an opportunity to try and improve the transparency of at least what the coalition forces are doing in terms of their um, engagement in this and as well as seeking to avoid areas where these civilians are actually located. I mean, what exactly can we do? Well, I think that because we know exactly what ISIS is trying to do with these civilians, because we know that they're packing people into basements and then putting, you know, two, three snipers on the roof of that very same building. What we need to see is that the coalition that in normal instances might say, you know, a 500 pound bomb to take out this building and these two snipers might make a lot of military sense because there may be 200 civilians in the basement. We don't know that. And, and in fact, we've seen, I think the best example of this was an airstrike on March 17 by the coalition where 140 individuals were killed. And when the Americans released the report after the airstrike took place, they said, you know, our intel watching the building hadn't shown us that these 140 civilians were in there in the basement because they'd been there for, for a few days. And so I think given that reality, we need to see the coalition exercising a level of caution that isn't even required by the laws of war, but an even a higher level of caution, as well as um, 
the commitment to use as small munitions as possible to take out any given military target. Um, and and then when when you get large numbers of civilians dying in a strike like the one I mentioned, that we see transparency not only around the investigation afterwards, but around compensation. You know, historically, co- the coalition that was involved in bombing in, in Afghanistan had a very clear, transparent mechanism for families to seek compensation. This war is very different. Since 2014, this coalition has only paid out two compensation claims of individuals and and uh, the the US the US led coalition refuses to give us any information on these particular compensation claims and won't even tell us how a family who let's say lost um, their loved ones how they could actually seek seek compensation and i think you know, there's a bit of this is is a PR game, right? The coalition and the Iraqi government are trying to say to people who lived outside of their control for three years, ISIS is the bad guy. We're the good guy. Mm-hmm. We have your interests at heart and we're trying to protect you. And if, you know, a family gets killed, we we need to see things like transparency around mm-hmm. uh, compensation. So they're really being treated as collateral damage. Absolutely. And, and, and they're, they're sort of the civilian families in, in, in the middle are really caught up in the, in the crossfire between this, this nasty uh, ground and air campaign and between ISIS. Yeah. And one of the things I um, saw in the reporting and also on Twitter was that um, coalition forces have at times been using, um, a, you'll have to tell me the proper name for it, but it's a white substance that they drop into areas to create a huge cloud, I guess, to give them an advantage when they're then seeking to bomb or destroy or have a, I guess, a a fight or combat situation. But that also can um, cause huge damage to the humans, including like burning through skin. I mean, is that something which, you know, obviously when you're talking about exercising restraint and caution should be part of that? Yeah, so so what you're referring to is something that we really have seen hitting the news in the last few days, which is the use of white phosphorus, which is an incendiary weapon, both in Mosul and also across the border in Syria and Raqqa. Now, um, there's a convention banning the use of incendiary weapons. Some countries have signed that and some countries haven't. And in the case of Iraq and the coalition forces, they haven't signed this convention. We as Human Rights Watch for years have actually been pushing that there are more stringent regulations around the use of incendiary weapons. And we've said it's specifically because if these are used, even if simply for screening purposes to provide coverage to movement of troops on the ground, as you said, when there are a lot of civilians around and these you know, horrific burns can be caused, buildings can be lit on fire, there's just such a level of danger. Huge. And I mean, the damage that is done physically is irreparable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, if you're thinking about a building that is lit on fire with 200 uh, civilians potentially in the basement, right, with nowhere to run, then then you're talking about um, a real increase in, in civilian casualties possibly. Indeed. And there's one um, also story that's been developing over a month or so um, and that we were mentioning just off air is that uh, footage has been smuggled out of Iraq by uh, an Iraqi photojournalist, Ali Akadi. Is that how to pronounce yes. it? Yes. Arkady. And um, he actually was embedded with an elite um, combat group in Iraq of Iraqi troops. It also did have um, some coalition involvement. Um, 
that's like the photos and the videos that he has are shocking to say the least. Um, people can type into Google to, to check this out. Um, it's published on ABC News and also on another outlet. Who was that again? Um, was ABC ran it. The first running was Der Spiegel, the, the German right. outlet. Yep. Um, and then it was also run by a Canadian outlet as well at yep. the same time. And this is quite significant, isn't it? Because I think intent. In the beginning, this journalist assumed he was there to really document a good story, which was that they were doing good work, you know, fighting um, the baddies, so to speak. And, um, and then it turns out that uh, in war, clearly there it's not that black and white. I mean, what do these photos really reveal in terms of human rights issues in this area? Well, I would first say that um, as horrific as these photos are and what they depict... This unfortunately is is nothing new. And as mm. I as I referenced at the beginning, when you talk about the beginnings of ISIS, what you the, the the reason we got to where we got was because you had Shia forces, you know, r- rounding up men, horrifically torturing and and executing them in in the ways that these photos depict. And over the years, the coalition has asserted that with their training, their expertise, their patronage, a lot of Iraqi forces have really cleaned up their act. And the operation to retake the the um, largest city before Mosul that was still under ISIS was in May of last year. And that operation looked really bad. And we saw 1,200 men get picked up, all from one tribe, all picked up just because they had the name of this tribe. 600 were held and tortured and then released. And the other 600 to this day are, are still disappeared. And we can only presume to have been executed. And following that, there was a real um, push on the side of the coalition and the Iraqis to say Mosul has to look better. And the forces involved in Mosul promised to prioritize protection of civilians and basic laws of war and human rights obligations. And the beginning of Mosul did look really good. And that was to a certain extent because in the east of the city, which was retaken in January, we saw forces that had had the longest and most significant training and support from the coalition. And these guys are better these days, right? And they and they do understand the basic rules of how to treat civilians. Unfortunately, they lost 50% of their fighters. Um, It was a really nasty battle. And now in West Mosul, you have different forces that are leading the charge. And one of the main forces is the one that he was embedded with, which is the Emergency Response Division. They're under the Ministry of Interior, not Ministry of Defense. And they just don't have the same level of commitment to protecting civilians. And uh, as you said, he went into this having been with this unit in Fallujah in the previous battle. And he thought he was really going to be documenting this this story of heroes, this small team of guys who are trying to retake their country from ISIS. And what he saw over and over again for a period of about a month was multiple instances where they rounded up men that they said were linked to ISIS on vague evidence uh, grounds. And then instead of, you know, arresting these people, bringing these people before a judge, they took justice into their own hands. Mm -hmm. They tortured them sometimes to enforce a confession, but sometimes purely out of, you know, masochistic revenge, often using uh, torture techniques that they learned from the Americans. Um, And then in some cases also executing. And these are really what you would term extrajudicial killings that, you know, there's no process here in terms of actually being able to judge whether this person is truly guilty of being on the side of ISIS or not. And often it's very dubious as to whether they are. Isn't that the case? Absolutely. And, and um, you, you know, we, we have been tracking with growing concern 
this database that's being used that has at the moment about 90,000 names on it that that is the database that that people are screened against so any man fleeing uh, uh, any ISIS controlled area if they get stopped at a check- checkpoint their ID card gets run against this database of 90,000 names now the way you get on that list is incredibly unclear i've heard of guys simply pissing off a neighbor and getting on that list, pissing off a fighter, a commander, and getting on that list. Um, or I've heard of, you know, tribal disputes. I've heard of land disputes. I've heard about fights about a woman getting you on that list. If you are on that list and you get picked up at a checkpoint, we have real concerns about what happens to you. And we actually released a, a report only a few days ago about 26 bodies that we found dumped on the sides of roads very close to where these screenings are happening and where these checkpoints are. And the one thing that's the same about all these bodies is that they're blindfolded, their hands are bound behind their back, still wearing plastic handcuffs. So very clearly were in custody at the time that they were executed. And I can only imagine some of these guys went through exactly what Ali Arkady was able to document from the inside. And also there was a situation and I'm not sure if it's the same um, instance where they were also dumped in a, a river area and there's a video up on the Human Rights Watch website which has an account of a, a member of that village um, where you know those bodies have just been left and um, they have now closed that um, water source because it had been polluted with blood and human remains. That was actually a, um, a different incident. That was actually an ISIS mass grave. Right. So while ISIS was in control of the area, they used this naturally occurring sinkhole and they dumped what locals estimate are thousands of bodies. They took men to be executed there and then dumped them into this sinkhole. And there was a village just down the road that had a water well that was connected to the underwater system running under the sinkhole. And, you know, one day they put the, the bucket in the well, pulled it out and the water was red and there were pieces of flesh and they had to immediately close it up, um, which highlights, I mean, really what for now three years people have had to live under while they've remained under ISIS. And obviously family members, um, you know, can't necessarily recover their the bodies of their living, their now deceased. Which has been really difficult for, for many parents who and, and, and loved ones who've tried to come to terms with, with the deaths. For, for in many cultures, it's so important to be able to bury the body in a respectful manner, to be able to go visit the grave. Um, and, and for the people that have been executed in this manner, they simply, either they don't know where their loved ones are or they know, but there's absolutely no way to retrieve their remains. Mm. And like, let's just quickly look at this because you said that we're nearing the end of the battle in West Mosul. Where are we currently at in terms of um, the status of ISIS's hold in this area? Um, and how long do you think it will take till they have been, I guess, pushed out of that area? And will that be the end of it? I don't think it is that simplistic, but what, what do you think? I think... Um in terms of Mosul, the, the battle should be done in principle within the coming weeks. You've got a few other small pockets in Iraq that are still under ISIS control, but much smaller. And then, of course, you've got the big battle coming up in Raqqa and Syria. Um, so, you know, I think we're talking months, maybe a year before these battles are done. But I think 
it's important to recognize that ISIS is already in the process of morphing into something else, which is going back to its roots, a basic terrorist insurgent group that's going to continue to carry out bombings, perhaps internationally, but definitely at the local level, you know, regular bombings in Baghdad and other major Iraqi uh, cities, and, and probably we'll see that in Syrian cities as well. And that's why the work that we're doing right now documenting abuses being perpetrated in the name of the fight against ISIS are so important because this campaign of of abuses against Sunni Arab men that Ali has shown that we historically have been concerned with since 2003 is going to remain a push factor for young Sunni Arab men to join ISIS even as it morphs into into sort of a, a more traditional terrorist insurgent group and that's why it's it's so important that the coalition recognizes that they should be putting just as much effort into the military battle against ISIS as into the political battle and the political battle is about getting Baghdad to stop Stop allowing with impunity these campaigns of abuse that are going to continue to push men in that direction. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, just finally looking at what the repercussions are at all, um, even down the track in terms of at least these abuses on both sides are being documented, but what can be done, if anything, to be able to seek some level of justice? You know, that's a, that's a, it's, it's a really tricky one. I mean, one of the communities that was most affected by the abuses of ISIS was the Yazidi community, a community that internationally has been given, uh, you know, a fair amount of coverage. And even for the Yazidis, you know, thousands of women held as sex slaves, men horrifically executed. There really is no prospect of justice for them at the moment in Iraq. And that's because... For one, there doesn't seem to be real serious political will. Um, and, and another practical reason, there aren't the right laws on the books. So war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide are not written into Iraqi law. And instead, Iraqi prosecutors simply want to use the counterterrorism law. So broadly speaking, charging an individual simply for being a member of ISIS with no interest to investigate what he might have done while he was a member of ISIS. Was he involved in a massacre? Did he have 10 Yazidi sex? slaves. And so as long as there isn't that political will to try these individuals, I don't see a real conversation um, about justice for victims happening anytime soon. And even more politically unpopular is the other side. So people that were victims of abuse by the forces that were fighting ISIS, that's something that, you know, there's no political support for within Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, Belkis, in terms of your talk tomorrow, um, what do you hope to, I guess, achieve in terms of speaking to an Australian audience and, um, you know, what do you want them to, I guess, receive? What's the message that you'd like to get across? I'd like to make it as as clear as I can why people in countries that are members of this coalition that are bombing ISIS should really care about the abuses that are being committed in the name of this campaign and why allowing these abuses to continue under the logic that, well, ISIS is so much more evil, they're the real bad guys, and therefore, you know, if a couple of them get executed, that's not really such a big deal. I really am trying to to counter that narrative and explain why it really is a big deal, Um from obviously the the human rights perspective, but also from a very practical one. If we want to get rid of ISIS, we can't continue to allow these abuses to happen. No, exactly. Human rights abuses by any person is um, absolutely not okay. (laughs) 
and that's that's the minimum. Um, Belkis, thank you really for joining us and for sharing your expertise. Um, it's really hugely valuable uh, to get your perspective on this really as a first-hand observer and um, a person really actively involved in protecting human rights. So thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Belkis Ville, who is Senior Iraq Researcher at Human Rights Watch, and she's in Melbourne uh, at the moment, and she's going to be giving a public lecture tomorrow at 6.30pm. You can actually book it through the University of Melbourne's um, Law Events webpage if you type into Google Abuses in the Fight Against ISIS. Uh, it's uh, at Room 106 Level 1 Melbourne Law School, and I'm sure she would very much welcome um, any audience questions Uh, about this topic as well. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy. Uh, We have with us, as promised, two very special guests who have come in from the cold to this lovely, nice studio here uh, to talk about Macbeth. Um, This is the current production on by the Melbourne Theatre Company. It's showing at the South Bank Theatre, the Sumner Theatre, and uh, it runs until the 15th of July. So you've got plenty of time to get on down there, but I do know that tickets are selling pretty quickly. So um, make sure you get in. Now, I have two of the, the wonderful and somewhat far more principled uh, characters in Macbeth, uh, Lady Macduff and Macduff and their actual names, I will let you know, are Dan Spielman and Sharina Clanton. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, uh, I had the pleasure of watching this show on opening night on Friday um, and Obviously, it opens with the three witches and, uh, Sharina, you also play one of the witches too. Um, It's just when you're confronted, I guess, when you walk in with these three witches sitting on the stage, are they kind of at a bus stop? They are. Yeah, on their, like, mobile phones. And, you know, it really sets the tone for what is a very different interpretation uh, of Macbeth, which, I mean, it has many interpretations being a classic uh, Shakespearean play. But... I mean, let's just go with where it's been set because um, it really, it's not a period as such. It doesn't seem like you can definitely say, well, it's at that point, it's in this um, decade. It's very near though. It seems very contemporary in terms of the costumes. Um, You know, we've got rifles and uh, very modern military costuming but there isn't like a clear when you walk in go, oh yeah, that's the early thousands or it's now. What what was the intention, I guess, from this the set, the costume, and setting it in this particular context where it's not necessarily about, you know, um, a king of Scotland, although that is really what it's about, but it's in a military context? You want to take that, Sharina? <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> uh, well, we both can take it. Um, Simon, I think, wanted to do a contemporary interpretation based upon the war in the Middle East without making intentional references to um, the conflict which is happening over there at the moment in regards to ISIS. But certainly there's intonations regarding the war in um, Afghanistan and the war that's just um, is endless and uh, perpetual. Um, the, The beginning whereby the witches, you meet the witches and you're confronted with the imagery of them, the three, you know, these um, quite obscure individuals, (laughs) (laughs) almost to be uh, 
kind of representative of an underground, yeah. they really see themselves in one of the conversations we've had in regards to establishing the witches was to make them not magical but that they could conjure and they could tap into a particular malevolence and darkness and they were representatives of um, a world that absolutely delighted in chaos and destruction and fed on fear. So the opening sequence, and not to destroy it for anybody, but <laughs> it is, it is, it's supposed to be confronting mm. and it's supposed to be relevant and it's supposed to be something that's, um, you know, we can have a, that's, we are confronted with and we are um, dealing with in terms of now and the, and constancy in terms of bombs and, and the unpredictability of where these bombs are. Um, is that these w- women, to, and I think of it as an individual character perspective, um, are really, to their own degrees, ambassadors for good, even though they are um, absolute advocates of, of darkness. Mm. But to them, they have a particular establishment of reorder and of the natural order of the world and are almost seeing themselves as... Um, metaphysical forces that engage with the human realm and human humanity itself um, in order to, you know, keep the balance in, in check. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting. interesting it's interesting contradictions. Yeah. And I think life and humanity is full of its own contradictions. So it's certainly a particular play on that. So Absolutely. And there is a certain familiarity, as you say, because it is so current and I guess then it makes it slightly more confronting and um, perhaps relevant in terms of the themes that come out and how you know given this is a a play about the 11th century in Scotland perhaps we haven't really evolved all that much Yeah I I think one of Simon Phillips's achievements is keeping the um, keeping the contemporary um, framework in a delicate balance so that we're not we don't get stuck in um any particular um framework of conflict whether Mm. it's iraq or whether it's afghanistan or Mm. coalition forces or american army or australian Mm. army because that would limit the scope of the play because um the play is about a very different kind of um war footing and a different kind of civil war um but Mm. he also seeks to um to sort of enlighten the text in a way that um, feels recognisable and these symbols, whether it's um, uh, camouflage or um, insurgency versus um, authority or um, kind of messy warfare, these things um, mean something to us and they Mm. can unlock certain things for us as a contemporary audience which which helps, helps as a way into what is undoubtedly incredibly complex text whichever way you cut it which whatever you do with your interpretation it's um it's of utmost importance to help the audience um into it and to give a framework and means of illumination to um grasp this incredible poetry because without those uh symbols and without that assistance it's um it's just like near impossible to comprehend yeah well there's so much happening even within individual characters such as Macbeth himself Um, and uh, I mean if we look at the I guess the way that it's been 
set and in particular the movement of characters because you've as you say you've got the text which is just so rich and so complex and I mean any Shakespearean play is a challenge in itself for actors Um, and it's Macbeth is a classic we all not all but a lot of people know it and have studied it at school in particular I certainly did so there's some scenes that are very familiar to people like the out damned spot monologue and I mean these are things which are very much um, treasured by by theatre goers and you know interested literary people and then you've got this other um, huge component which is the sound and the movement the set movement and design that's constantly changing and I mean it's it was mind-boggling for me to think that um, you all had coordinated it down to precise seconds where everyone was on the stage where the stage was moving and going in a circle I mean this is all something which is highly coordinated but then needs to appear natural to an extent, um, that it's still quite stylized in the way that it comes across. But, I mean, how did you as an a ensemble work together to build in the complexity of the script whilst also managing this fast pace that exists in the play? <laughs> well, I mean, Serena and I are laughing because um, even though we, we're open and we did have a day off uh, on Sunday... Um, we're still recovering, all of us, <laughs> from the task of doing, doing what you're all describing. That. Right, yeah. Um, it came across very strongly. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's been... And, in fact, um, Simon, having done two productions with similar technology, let's say, right, yeah. um, Shakespeare productions over the last ten years... Mm. Um, was somehow for was in some ways forewarned about how difficult it was going to be to orchestrate. So we spent a good deal of time in rehearsals <laughs> dealing with this technical stuff as well yeah. as in the theatre. Um, you have to know exactly where you are, exactly, or else you get squashed mm, or crushed yes. or spun off the stage because there's so <laughs> ma- so many moving parts. Hugely, people are moving the the set around as well as the set moving them around mm. and going in and off, and you're also in the audience at points. I mean, it is quite amazing to think of all the blocking that you've been doing and cues you're remembering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love because it was a very different process going from the rehearsal room into the theatre. Right, right. And not having a revolve to work on and work with. And then you're dealing with really all the technicalities within the technical rehearsals. And there were times where sometimes you just... We didn't, you know, you're, you're, you're finessing it to a, a particular degree where you're literally running off <laughs> just as the fly comes off, mm. comes up. So it's yeah. um, everyone's, we've able to syncopate it in a way now that um, seems to have its own energy and rhythm and um, certainly is a character in itself. Yeah, it's an organism. <laughs> yeah, but it's, um, it's, it, it's absolutely, um, you know, it's it's... Simon has done a formidable and wonderful job about um, making sure that it assists the text, assists the dialogue, assists the world of the play Mm. and it's not um, inundating it with an overwhelming um, technicality of it and it's really really there to help bring the world and the text to life. So, no, I I hope people enjoy it and I'm glad that um, you saw no people, like, leftover feet or something. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone was intact. Off the wings. Yeah. yeah, no, it's more good. Or less, it's good. More Generally, or less. <laughs> you, you guys are looking pretty good for for all of that work. Thanks. Good it's work. Coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Um, now, I want to talk about your characters in particular. So, um, Lady Macduff and Macduff, we were just mentioning off air, you guys aren't on stage together no. as husband and wife. No. But then you have such a strong emotional um you know, experience because, mm. you know, not wanting to give away the whole plot line, I'm sure most people can Wikipedia it, but, yeah. you know, um, something really big happens and, you know, Lady Macduff, you are obviously really that I think scene. it's okay to say, isn't it, the story? Yeah, yeah everyone. It's pretty, pretty powerful. I'll, I'll let it, let people know. So, you know, Lady Macduff, we see have this scene where we have people coming in who they want to get at you, Macduff, mm. and so they actually violently kill um, you and your baby and um, who was the other character in the scene at the same time? The young well, Macduff's son. The, the, Macduff's the, son. The, it's all That's the Macduff's right. family. They're all the yeah. family mm-hmm. but yeah. there's a, a newborn child yeah. mm-hmm. in the bassinet yeah. and then there's the other son yeah. who's, you know, a, I guess a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is one of the most confronting scenes, I is think. It? Yeah. Well, I had a, well, I did jump. I actually mm. jumped in my seat and also, I mean, to see but not see the soldier, I guess, kill the baby was Mm. probably one of the strongest feelings I've had, you know, and to then see your response, which is, you know, very masterfully acted because it seemed to grasp the visceral Mm. torment of losing your child and then obviously then being killed yourself. I mean... When you're doing a scene like that, how do you um, move into that space? Because it's also done in a bit of a different way from what the text actually is as well. It's in mm. this modern context. Mm. Mm. Oh, look, some of a lot of that was playing with um, <clears throat> um, whether it, some of the dialogue assists that um, in terms of tapping into the world of that because often I have to remember to not preempt the ending and to stay purely in the moment and like you know basic acting 101 but um you know in terms of knowing what's coming as the actor sometimes it's just i've i've you know in the text it originally says that she's dragged off and she's screaming murder murder but in actual fact it to to be that visceral and horrific um you know, it was it was Simon who came up with the idea that you know I want it to be bloody, I want it to be confronting, and I want it to be you know that atrocious scene and horror of you know an, as an extension of Macbeth's actions and his um, desire to take control of the environments around him um, with a particular darkness um, that the play incites and and what Macbeth's journey is, where it really, you know, to attack an innocent family, especially a non-armed family, to then kick into the heart and guts of your enemy is something incredibly um, tactful. And... We wanted to kind of, um, you know, often at times, you know, I would find it really confronting to hold my baby and just having to, it was almost as if 
I have to imagine as if someone has literally gone into my womb and ripped out my baby. Mm. And that's the only way I can access those emotions where it has to be kind of all hell has broken loose, which essentially it, it did, has. Yeah. So um, that's and and we do we opened it in a way where we could hear you. One of the the soldiers or the insurgents, so to speak, um, come into the to to the household, and then you see one of the doors open, and it and you see hear the cries of the other children. Mm. So it's just. Uh, you know, it's it's just that you just live in the horror of it. Mm. And I hope and hopefully it comes across in place. And then as a result, Macduff then has to find out that his whole family has been slaughtered, savagely slaughtered. Mm. And it's not just in a way that we come in with a gun and shoot the whole family. No, no. It was actually quite... It was actually playing with levels of sadism where they actually enjoyed and relished in the fear and the terror and the horror and the cruelty of their actions. So watching the the play unfold or the actions unfold when my son's head gets smacked across the table and then he gets knocked out yeah. and then you know the, they've pulled over the bassinet and then and I'm trying to crawl to my baby to see if she's okay and then they've the, the, the soldiers stomped on her head mm. and then as I'm picking her out bloodied hands and it's, I'm like just it needs blood it's that horrific moment then the door opens and they're, they're crying mum and then you see that one of the soldiers has gone in to, to slaughter them. So then it goes into the scene where Macduff has to hear the information that Ross has has, uh, has to unfortunately give him. Mm, and so, it. Dan, <laughs> it's now up to you. I mean, you this that scene is also one that's particularly difficult. And, I mean, Ross is coming in and, um, you know, he sits down and tells you the news. I mean... How do you tap into what your character's response is, um, given that, yeah, it's it's such a big thing? Um, the, the, all the clue, all the necessary clues are in the language and that's mm. um, not always the case as an actor. Sometimes or often you have to invent or um, discover or create other, other means to um, focus mm. around the dialogue or text you're given, but... With Shakespeare, it's, in my opinion at least, um, it's it's all in the, um, the achievement of the text. And um, yeah. in that sense, there's some very interesting rhythms and broken rhythms in the scene, for example, which indicate where um, Macduff's thoughts might be broken or re- repeated mm. questions, for example. He, well, he, he asks the questions understand. over and over again. Yeah, like yeah. all of them. Like, yeah, that's right. And, and do you say little ones? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, the famous line is "all my pretty chickens." Mm. Um, so that there are these repetitions in the language which indicate shock or indicate um, that he, he either hasn't heard properly or won't hear or hasn't been able to absorb yet. And so, um, like with anything else we're doing, you repeat that and practice it and yeah. try and um, try and get anything um, that's confusing um, that emotionally or sentimentally out of the way yeah. and um, and clarify more and more what's actually written there in the text. I mean, with Shakespeare, it's mm. easy, easier in a way to identify these clues because it has this iambic structure. So um, 
you can identify fairly quickly where the the de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum mm. has been broken by Shakespeare in order to indicate these kinds of things. There might be a, 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 as they call a feminine or soft ending, or there might be a broken line or a shared line between mm. two characters. The form is quite strict, so when it's broken, it usually means something, and so that's where that's the sort of starting point. Yeah, so you're almost like a forensic detective looking through the text. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, for me, it's useful to approach it that way because there's, you know, th- as you've said, there's there's dozens of um, productions of this play. There's dozens of movies. There's like in, in all of our experience, we've received some kind of idea about this or that part of the text or lines from it, um, and also the scenarios. We can imagine. I mean, certainly, just listening to your previous guest, there's like mm. plenty of images and stories of these kinds of horrors around us all the time. If you want to look mm. for them, mm. and sometimes if you don't, mm. um, so it's useful for me to concentrate on these practical things first and see what is there rather than um, just allow all the sentimental and um, received ideas to build a picture first. Mm. Um, and then um, then it's just working with lovely actors because it's in the listening and the sharing of these moments and the, and the way that one actor can um, present a moment to another through feeding them a line or listening or or a pause or whatever, that's when you start building these moments and making them into something that's your own. Mm. That definitely comes through strongly in that scene with the three characters Mm. that are there. And it's something that's really pivotal because then it spurs on to like the conclusion of the play, which is that Macduff takes action and he goes to avenge his family, but also to just stop this madness from continuing. Um, it is really quite chaotic towards the end and, you know, you have um, the soldiers being amongst the audience at one point. Mm. Um, so you really, you are breaking the wall, so to speak, because um, at that point, you know, there hadn't been, it had been very much largely the stage and then the audience. Um, and I think that was quite clear that, you know, it was bringing people in to feel the I guess, repercussions of such cruelty. Mm. Um, when you were then, I guess, acting as a as the, the light, the moral light and principled character of this play coming in to really stop the abuse and, um, and violence, um, unparalleled power grabbing, mm. I mean... What what do you think? I mean, Macduff is usually given this huge heroic role, or I guess reputation as the the guy who comes in and stops it all from happening, and then allows a new person to, you know, take on the reins. Mm. I mean, what do you perceive your character's role to be? Is it really that black and white? Um, as Mac- and what do you think Macduff's I guess complexity is, or um, shade and light? Because he's not all light. No, he's not, and. Um that's the that's one way of looking at the complexity and um, beauty of uh, of Shakespeare's work is to see is to start to perceive how um, human these these um, pieces of text are um, and so in in Macduff's case um, he has a, a a a role to fulfil structurally in the play there needs to be a counterpoint to Macbeth and that's mm. what Macduff is he he does come from another place and he does experience things differently and in the contrast you um you see the antipathy the, the um you see the the balance one side and the other of the of the spectrum but but i think a more interesting theme 
exploiting the play is about every every human being's thresholds mm. and so that's why we might be able to care for Macbeth for quite a bit of the play mm. if if we can mm. because we can understand somehow what it's like to be presented with an extreme choice um, and to flirt with that choice to the point where suddenly you can't go back you've made it and you're in a whole new world and then and then I think that function in itself or that that thing that happens in life where you think something presents itself and you make this choice and you break into a new thing and there's no turning back we all know or fear that mm. and um and in that sense all the characters um share that in the play and Macduff is no exception mm. he he has to he goes through many thresholds there are many things that he he um impulsively reacts to and then finds himself in a new place and has to make choices i think he's not um he's not an avenging angel in as a character in fact i think that um that if it were me um which is one of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we do it um i think the only way to meet the malevolence of um, someone who's killed your family like that and who is killing your country like that um, is w- through a kind of malevolence as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like I think you kind of you can't rationally decide to to end that. You have to, and that's what Macduff goes through. I think he kind of he loses so much that all that's left is this kind of direction to destroy this thing. Um, that he knows to be wrong, um, but I don't know what's left of Macduff after he mm. after he has that victory. Um, and we don't so really get the, to that's find the end out. Point. Do no, we? you don't get to yeah. find out because the play, like in this wonderful thing about about Shakespeare as an actor, is that you get your moment mm. where you know you get your climax, but then it moves on. It's like you have these moments as characters, but then it's about something else. These huge things can happen, but the text moves on. So mm. in Macduff's case, he, he kills Macbeth and the time is free, as he says, but then Malcolm takes the stage and it's about the future of Scotland. It's about this ruler who does have the qualities um, the qualities required to govern. Mm. Um, and, and hopefully so we'll retain Macduff's, them. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, but he does, it almost doesn't <clears throat> get to sit in the consequence of his actions enough as well, in terms of leaving his family mm. and children and abandoning them mm. in the state That's of chaos, true. yeah, and devastation and death and warfare. Because um, your character is remarking upon that he's not here, and you're setting the table and quite angry at Macduff for leaving yeah, you there. Well, it's, I mean, played by the fantastic Rodney Afif. Um, Again, mm. the language and, and the beautiful actors that we share have the luxury of sharing a stage with. Um, she really makes commentary in the fact that he asks her to have patience. She, she goes, "What have you done? What has he done to fly, make him fly the land?" And she's, he's basically counteracting her frustration and her rage and her um, trying to grapple with the understanding of his actions of leaving um, and abandoning his family. And his responsibility as a father and a husband. <clears throat> and um, 
Ross really comes to counteract it with, uh, you must have patience. And she's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like so the equivalent to someone saying, calm down. <laughs> you when calm you're angry. down. Okay. You know, she's like, you know, her, her response again, which is so wonderful about Shakespeare, is that there is, it's all there in terms of you can have the rage, you can mm. have the frustrations, you can have the vulnerability, you can have the anger, and it allows you to create these incredibly complex characters that are representatives of humanity and to understand and sometimes not understand the mm. justifications in which they have and why they do it. And sometimes you don't get an answer. And, you know, I think the response in what Ross says, it's like, you know, we, we, we sometimes hold um, sway to our, to our fears rather than, you know, trusting that your husband is a good man and, you know, yeah. essentially, and he knows what's best in the, and, and the, what's best fits the, 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 the time and the place and the season of things. And, you know, she's just still raging with the fact that, you know, you've left your family, mm, <laughs> essentially, mm. and you've left me alone. And with a I'm newborn, can I just say. And, and you <laughs> sit in the fear. Yeah. A lot of the play deals with a lot of people's fears mm. and thresholds, obviously, as well. Um, so, you know, what, what the conflict that has individually and collectively. So it's, it's such a wonderfully interesting play and, and such rich vibrant text. Mm. I loved it. That, that aspect of the Macduff's relationship, though they never have a scene together. Um, when you do meet Lady Macduff, she, it's, a very, it's a very modern um, perception, um, a very Ooh. modern portrayal yes. because she's not like, oh, you know, happy families, you know, <laughs> um, we are the Macduffs and, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know, what a lovely idol to be smashed by this evil force. It's actually yeah, like yeah. my husband has abandoned me and you, child, and that mm. means he's a traitor. Yeah. You yeah. Know, this r- wonderfully complex conversation between mother and son about the absent father. Yeah. Um, it's very modern. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. And so that's what we get given as an audience to yeah. um, sympathise. It's actually very complex and and sort of mm. relatable in that way. Mm, mm. It absolutely and is, and all the more tragic for it. Exactly, mm. yeah. Which is why I mean, Shakespeare genius. Um, it's it is really quite shocking and amazing to think that he wrote it that long ago because mm. of the way you're just saying there. I mean, it's the parallels. Mm. Well, the narrative doesn't change. No, it seems. it's like whatever the context of war is. Even though yeah. you know we can make hints or connotations or tonalities at whatever particular war middle east whatever but it's um it, it it's a landscape of war mm, of mm. every war and the effects of war and what war does and what power can do to an individual or the um c- kind of megalomania um that it attaches itself to an individual that essentially is you know at once at one point in time was a, a highly celebrated and glorified warrior. And also, just to add to that, um, that these texts, um, their age and their their poetic achievement means that, A, you can't help but do an interpretation of them, but also they always challenge whatever interpretation you have. That's why they last and that's why they resonate in all these different ways at different times because they are extraordinary feats, achievements of language poetically, politically, historically, and you can't... No one company, no one production and no one actor is big enough to encounter, to fully do everything that's required. And so, so, you know, that's... Yeah, that's that's just a... um, 
a quality of these artefacts that means we are always trying to illuminate aspects of them yeah. and they speak to us in our time. Um, but they will respond to all different kinds of um, audiences, I think. Mm, which is why Shakespeare is the greatest challenge and the greatest joy for any actor. Yeah. Um, I would absolutely love to thank you for coming in and sharing your um, expertise as wonderful Shakespearean actors in this play, uh, Dan me. and Sharina. Um, and the play is on. It started already. So um, people can head on down to the Sumner Theatre, booking through MTC's website. Um, and it's called Macbeth. It's by Shakespeare. And it's directed by Simon Phillips. And um, and the headline cast as well, I'll mention, is Jai Courtney playing Macbeth, Geraldine Hakewill playing Lady Macbeth and pretty much the whole cast is stellar. There is no, um, you know, standout in my eyes. You're all amazing and you work together in such a wonderful ensemble that um, I think you all complement each other. So Thank congratulations. You. It's a good Thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's certainly like everyone's fantastic and it's just a beauty and a joy to do and to be around. So thank you. That's great. Thank you. That is uh, Dan Spielman and Sharina Clanton, and they have joined us in the studio to discuss Macbeth, which is playing now at the MTC, and it's up to the 15th of July, so it's going to run for uh, a month and a bit. We have the delight to be speaking with Dr Richard Dennis who is Chief Economist at the Australia Institute and he's written an article in the monthly and it's called Grandfathering the Australian Dream. Hi Richard and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Morning, morning. Um, So you've written this piece and um, first of all it talks about grandfathering. Um, Now maybe we should just debunk or de-econobabble as you might say what the term grandfathering means and I'm sure we'll explicate this across the whole discussion but just first of all what does grandfathering really mean? Yeah look in in policy debates you'll often hear politicians say don't worry you know we're going to grandfather existing uh, existing investors or we're going to grandfather existing benefit recipients or the term grandfather is often used to tell everyone relax you know we're introducing some harsh changes but don't worry they probably won't hurt you now what the point i'm trying to make in the essay is that every time young people hear politicians say relax we're going to keep things as they are for for people that are already in the system but we're going to make it harder for those that are coming into the system what you've really heard is be afraid if you're young because what we keep doing is is changing the law in ways that uh, makes uh, everything from welfare to the tax system more onerous for the young while protecting the old but every time these changes are introduced, the 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 the, the, the econobabble, the weasel words that are used to hide this distributional fact is grandfathering. So, really, the point of the essay is to expose the fact that over the last twenty years we've changed so many laws in ways that have made life harder for young people while protecting uh, middle-aged and older Australians like myself. 
Indeed. And I mean, it's often util- used in, particularly in debates around superannuation, for example, where people, or even investments, making financial investments, because people have made a decision based on current policy settings that is a long-term one, and they don't want to be disadvantaged by new policy settings and new arrangements. I mean, do they have any leg to stand on when we talk about the relevance of grandfathering just in a policy context? Well, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the, we, whenever we set out to protect one group in the community from risk, when we set out to say to one group in the community, you can have certainty, what we're really saying is that everybody else will have to deal with more uncertainty. So when we keep saying to retirees, don't worry, we'd never do anything that hurts you, well, what that means is that whenever the government needs to collect more revenue or save some more money, if they've ruled out ever hurting one group in the population, then they have to hit other groups even harder. Now, that's, that's, that's democracy, that's politics. They're not in breach of the Constitution by loading up pain on young people. But when, when these changes are announced, as I said, the, the wonderful bit of econobabble of grandfathering is designed to make it all seem friendly and safe. But what they're really saying is, well, we'd, we'd never cut the age pension, so why don't we cut, uh, why don't we cut youth allowance? Mm. We'd, never cut, we, we, we'd never reduce tax concessions for superannuants, so why don't we make people with hex debts pay them off faster? Uh, we'd, we'd never make people that bought assets before 1983 pay capital gains tax, so why don't we, uh, why don't we increase income tax on younger people? You know, again, it's it's democracy. We're we're allowed to be brutal to uh, to young people if we want to, but you know, let's let's call it for what it is. Exactly. Well, I mean, creating and perpetuating inequity between the generations, essentially. Yeah, and I think that you know we have to be really careful here because uh, you know we often talk about this intergenerational conflict, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I think that matters. But there, there are plenty of old people who are poor, mm. and there's plenty of, and there are plenty of young people who are quite wealthy. So uh, I think young people have to be careful to uh, not fall into the trap of just playing young versus old, because uh, they don't have the numbers. No. <laughs> when the middle age, when when the middle aged combine with the old aged, the young people lose. Yes, but. When when we talk about what's fair, you know, do, do, do people who earn more than a million dollars a year pay enough tax? Is it is it okay that retirees that earn a million dollars a year pay not a cent in tax? Well, there's a whole bunch of older women who are retired on modest incomes that don't have a cent in superannuation. And frankly, young people who wish they could afford to buy a house and older women on low incomes paying rent have got a lot in common. So I, you know, part of what I'm trying to say in the essay is, is don't fall into the trap mm. of just playing young versus old. There's, there's a lot of young people struggling financially. There's actually a lot of old people struggling financially. And if they got together, if they worked together and, and, and made people that earn a million bucks a year and don't pay any tax pay some tax then that would probably be good for low-income young people and low-income old people. Indeed. Well, that's a really smart and clever point, Richard, um, pointing out the nuance in this. <laughs> and it's it's often played out uh, on Twitter, this whole division and the, the, I guess, ridiculousness of it um, 
that is whipped up by discussions around avocado toast, for example, really highlights this kind of furphy, I guess, which is to really cement the difference between the generations, at least at a superficial level, and also to suggest that um, that it's all on young people, that they've brought it all upon themselves um, by being selfish, uh, as are, you know, the unemployed, they've brought it all on themselves obviously by not having a job. Um, hopefully people can hear my sarcasm in there. Um, so, you know, it's, it is disturbing to see these divisions um, being, I guess, further cemented. Your, the opening night line of your piece is a really strong one. I want to read it out. Um, It says, the Liberal Party of Robert Menzies wanted all Australians to own their own home. The Liberal Party of Malcolm Turnbull wants us all to be landlords. Could you expound upon that for us? Yeah, no, look, once upon a time, uh, the the Conservative Party in Australia, the Liberals, um, who, you know, the Liberal Party was built by Robert Menzies. There there was no Liberal Party until he created it. Um, His his number one kind of uh, policy goal, his his political platform and his policy priority was uh, encouraging home ownership. And post-World War II, when he was Prime Minister, we saw this incredible uh, rapid and large increase in, in home ownership. And, and that was because, as a, as a Conservative Prime Minister, he genuinely believed that uh, if most people owned their own home, if they were paying off their own home and, and they, they, they'd work hard, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd pay their bills on time, they wouldn't want to lose the stake that they had in their community... Um, and keep in mind that this was taking place at a time, and many of your listeners will find this a bit weird, but this was taking place at a time where Soviet Russia was a real genuine, not just military, but ideological threat to the West. And, and, and what Menzies wanted to do was to, to show people in Australia that they could all build something that they had a stake in. So... Menzies' political strategy and his economic strategy revolved around giving people a stake in their community, literally. And, of course, these days we've got uh, Liberal politicians that own 15 houses extolling the virtues of everyone being a landlord, when, of course, we can't all be landlords. If, if everyone was landlords, who would rent our property <laughs> office? Um, if we all owned two homes, who would our tenants be? So we've kind of seen this incredible reversion from the right in Australia away from literally giving working-class people a stake, not just for economic reasons but for political reasons. Uh, We've turned that on its head now and said, well, if you don't retire with a couple of houses, you're an idiot, you know, and and those that do own a couple of houses should should roll their eyes at those that, quote, didn't make good decisions early in life Mm. now big picture what I'm saying in the essay is that's a rather radical position to adopt for a conservative party because with rapid population growth with lots of people feeling no sense of connection to their community that's not a that's not a conservative community where people feel attached to each other that's actually the kind of community where people uh where people feel that they've got no stake in it and um there's a political and economic risk from that yes it's fragmented 
And you talk about older Australians um, worrying about a decline in, quote, Australian values. And these are some of the values you're talking about, which is, you know, people being self-sufficient, people owning their own homes. And But you say that it really, because of these changing circumstances and the change of policy um, of parties and the change of their expectations upon people's ability to own a home, that really it makes it impossible for young families, well, to even become a traditional family, if that's what they want, um, and to own their own home. I mean, it's there still seems to be this assumption that you should be able to, if you would like to, own your own home, but then a lot of young people now are resigned to the fact that they won't ever have one. I mean, what, what is this disconnect between the expectation of um, the general Australian population and the, those traditional values you're talking about from the Menzies era? Yeah, look, I think that at the moment we're at a turning point in our politics. I don't know what comes next, but I think we can pretty much agree that what we've been doing won't be maintained. So the old-fashioned political consensus in Australia from from the left and the right was one of, you know, we're all in it together, mateship, egalitarianism. These, These words used to be based on a meaningful description of Australian society. We really did have... Uh, high levels of home ownership. We really did have uh, high minimum wages. We really were not perfect, but compared to other countries, uh, the gap between rich and poor wasn't large. There really were opportunities for people to to go to a good public school and go to a, a free university. And and if they wanted to, uh, you know, the opportunities for advancement were there. Well, let's be clear. That's over. Like, we stopped that years ago, but our political culture doesn't really admit that. So what we now have is uh, is politicians saying, you know, whatever happened to good old Aussie values, when at the same time the people, the politicians talking about good Aussie values are, uh, are trying to make it harder for young people who lose their job from a factory closure to get any unemployment benefits. We're, we're, we're making people pay uh, far more for education than, than the people talking about the, the, the Australian values ever did. So we've kind of got a rhetoric that no longer matches to our reality, but no one's quite called that out yet. And uh, I guess a big point in my essay is probably saying, well, actually young people need to be the ones to call it out and rather than have older politicians preach to them about Aussie values, uh, I think I think younger voters need to throw that back in people's faces and say, you've never treated us like that once. Absolutely. And you do say that, uh, that the labelling of generations, such as Gen X, Gen Y and Millennials, are used to help, quote, disguise structural problems as behavioural traits. And these are the structural problems you're talking about that we're not actually confronting and having a proper discussion about and what young people do need to lead those discussions. Um, and you talk about labels preventing... Australians from focusing on the simple questions, but also the simple choices that governments make. And you referenced this at the the Progress Conference uh, last week on a panel you were on with uh, John Felson and Sally McManus, and you were talking about the fact that uh, governments can choose to do what they like, but they're choosing to do what they're doing right now and and they know what the impact upon this is. Um, And one of the examples you give in this essay is that 
A government that says it can't afford to reduce greenhouse gas emissions can afford to subsidise the construction of the Adani coal mine. I mean, if we bring it back down to this simplicity, which is that politicians have been making choices that largely have been obscured by this language about Australian values and generational differences, I mean, how do we break through this? Oh, look, yeah, I'm not sure. The first thing we have to do is admit that it's a problem. So, you know, to be clear, uh, my parents never went out for breakfast, you know, 60 years ago. They didn't. There were no cafes. They never had smashed avocado and toast in their life at a restaurant. Now, that's, that's I would suggest, irrelevant to who they are as people, who they are as Australians. But when we have a public debate that leads generations to look at each other through small differences like that, rather than large things that they have in common, like what kind of country they want to have, um, that's, a, that's a perfect environment to create division. Now, don't take me wrong, I don't want to make another uh, generational stereotype here, but it's, it's common for young people to think that politicians are stupid and politics is boring, and that is, of course, exactly what politicians want them to think. Politicians, successful ones, are actually some of the smartest people in the country. And if you wanted to maintain the status quo, if you, if you wanted to keep things the way they are, or even better, if you wanted to cut taxes for rich people while making poor young people spend even more money on health and education, it takes real skill in a democracy to get away with that. I mean, how do you deliver tax cuts for the top 10% and more expensive health and education for the bottom 50%? That's not an accident. And, and one of the simplest ways to do that is to divide people, is to make young poor people and middle-aged poor people and old poor people feel like they've got nothing in common. It's to make high, you know, middle-income middle-aged people think they've got nothing in common with young people and, 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 uh, and, and the wages they earn. So... The divisions about smashed avocado and Anzac legends and, you know, white versus Muslim or men versus women, all of those divisions help to keep the public uh, distracted from big questions like, why do we want to be one of the lowest tax countries in the developed world? Is the fact that we've got far lower taxes than Europe the reason that our health and education system is so much more expensive than theirs. We're not allowed to ask big questions like that in Australia because we're off debating the minutiae of negative gearing or whether, whether the behavioural traits of young people explain why they can't afford a $2 million house. Mm, it's a clever distraction tactic, isn't it? Well, this is my point. It's very clever. Yeah. And... But, the, you know, the, the best trick the devil ever played was to convince people he didn't exist. And the best trick that politicians can play is to convince people that politics is boring. Mm. Because every year our federal government gives $400 billion to services that it likes. There's no problem <laughs> that we can't solve in Australia with $400 billion. The question is, which problems do we want to prioritise? Are we worried about homes for the homeless or holiday homes for the holiday homeless? Are we worried about the, the pressures of retiring 
on an income of only $50,000 a year or are we worried that the, mid, the minimum wage is less than $40,000 a year? It's, it's up to us as a society to choose which big problems to pay attention to and when we get divided into do you go out for breakfast very often, then you know, we're, 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 we're prevented from seeing what we have in common with each other. Indeed. And you do talk about um, the the big picture as well in terms of the fact that it, as we are a democracy, we can actually decide not only the size of the economy and whether it grows in a certain way, but also its shape. Um, and that's something which it seems is much better for the, the Liberal Party and the Coalition is let's, you know, forget about that. We can say a few words about innovation and, you know, hope that the economy transitions away from um, a resources boom into a knowledge economy by accident. I mean, how do we as a collective actually drive those discussions around um, what we want to prioritise and the shape of our economy? Because it does seem like, because when you're talking in this big picture terms, how do you, um, I guess, bring everyone together? Well, that's right. The question is, well, how do we do that? Well, the only way to do that is through engagement with a, with our political class. The only way really to do that is, is through democratic debate about what shape of country do you want to live in? Do you, we're we going to spend $50 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet, but we can't afford to spend more on, on Indigenous disadvantage or we can't afford to fund uh, domestic violence shelters for women and, of course, we couldn't possibly uh, afford to, uh, to, to spend more money on health and education. That's not true. <laughs> it's clear we can afford to. The question is, which do we want to do more? Now, one of the biggest tricks that I'd suggest that the, 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 the conservatives, the, the neoliberal agenda is driven through our democratic debate is to keep asking people a phony question. Do you think the economy should grow or shrink? Do you think it should be bigger or smaller? And pretty much everyone will go with bigger because they understand that bigger means we'd have more resources and more capacity to solve more problems. But the idea that if only the economy was big enough, one day we'd be able to afford to look after the vulnerable, well, we've got 30 years of evidence suggesting that that never happens. What I think is a far more interesting and important democratic question is what shape do you think our economy should be? What, what do you think we should have more of and what do you think we could have less of? Because there are trade-offs. We, we're rich enough to have anything we want, but we're not rich enough to have everything we want. And having a democratic discussion about saying, well, if, if we did introduce the kinds of wealth taxes, for example, that are common in the US or common in Europe, if we did introduce those sort of wealth taxes and we spent more money on the kind of services that people had in other countries, uh, do you think that would be a good idea or a bad idea? Now, you don't have to be an economist to get engaged in that conversation. You just have to be a citizen. And I'd suggest that's exactly why people don't frame it that way. You know, as we've talked about before, I think all of the econobabble, all of that jargon, 
about uh, about the economy is designed to stop people feeling confident to ask simple questions and demand simple answers. Exactly, exactly. And people can read your book, Econobabble, to delve into that aspect because it's something that will continue to arise. Um, every time we have a budget released or a policy discussion, it's the economics that is... Um, over-emphasised and obviously and then excludes people from really participating in this debate that we need to have. Um, and your, I guess the final um, point that you make in this piece is um, that really overall the strategy is about, is breaking up a cohesive society um, rather than building something up um, which really requires the unity that Menzies was looking for and he was doing that in one way through people being able to to own a stake in the community through owning a home. Um, but you say, and as you've just referenced, that division is a radical political strategy, not a conservative one. Do you think the conservatives might ever return to some point of um, emphasis on cohesion? Oh, look, I, I guess that's a question for them. But what they're doing at the moment is playing a very risky game. Because, uh, again, the reason that Menzies was so keen on cohesion was that he was looking around the world, literally at the time, and, and seeing riots in the US and riots in the UK. And, and riots don't usually happen in middle-class suburbs where people own their own homes. People usually burn down houses they don't own, uh, not <laughs> ones they're paying off. So, so Menzies saw... The, 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 the security need as well as the economic benefits of, of uniting people. But I fear that we take that, uh, we take this, the political stability and security of Australia for granted. And now we have conservatives who are all too willing to try and divide, divide us on racial grounds to play new migrants off against old migrants, to play young people off against old people. Mm. And again, in the short term, in the short term, that can be a highly effective political strategy. But in the long term, uh, a community that can't work together, a community that doesn't have empathy for each other, that's, that, that doesn't just have social consequences, that has dire economic and dire national security consequences when, when we don't see ourselves being invested in a common project. So I, I fear that, as is, many, as is often the case these days, short-term politics is getting in the way of, uh, of long-term policy, but the purpose of the essay is to, is to not just have a debate about negative gearing mm. or some other, uh, some other specific policy idea, but rather to get young people thinking about what's happening to their democracy because they're the ones that are going to inherit it. Yes, and you did say um, at that conference at Progress um, that one of the things that politicians are most scared of is um, the massive feedback from their own electorates when someone's unhappy with how things are going. And it does seem quite simple, but a huge thing to actually um, voice your disapproval and then um, actively work together at a grassroots level to campaign for change. Oh, absolutely. And again, that's why convincing young people that politics is boring is so important for politicians. Imagine that you were a politician who was coming under enormous, prof uh, under enormous pressure from, from a billionaire donor uh, to, 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 to change the law in some way that was good for them. But you also had hundreds of your constituents coming into your office saying, 
if you change that law, I will never vote for you again. That is what really puts politicians under pressure, knowing that if they deliver for their mates, they will lose votes amongst their constituency. But, but if under pressure to deliver for your mates, you're confronted by lots of young people saying, well, politics is boring, they're all the same, doesn't matter who's in, none of them are going to look after me... That's the sound of a politician <laughs> relaxing. <laughs> nothing, seriously, nothing yeah. better for a politician to hear than that a large segment of society thinks they're all as bad as each other and it doesn't matter who they vote for. Because that's one way of saying, I'm not putting any pressure on you. Mm. So, yeah, my, my, my advice to young people is if, and it's a big if, but if you really care about the cost of housing, if you're really worried about the cost of education, if you're really worried uh, about uh, access to services or same-sex marriage, whatever it is you're interested in, go and see a politician, be polite, and tell them that if they listen and if they do what you want, then you'll vote for them, and if they don't, you won't. Don't call them names. Don't say they're all the same. Vote for the one who's closest to what you want. And then as soon as they're in, go and tell them unless they lift their game even further, you're going to switch again. <laughs> and to be... Well, but this yeah, no, it's, and to, totally. And, and to be clear, yeah. older people have figured this out <laughs> and older people spend a lot more time writing those letters, mm. making those phone calls and having those meetings. They do, they do. And it's writing letters and having phone calls is... Um, important social media is no substitute for that so i think we need to actually be a bit more direct absolutely and you know unless i sound too optimistic have a look at the uk election yes nearly no. every nearly every analyst has drawn the same conclusion young people stayed away from the brexit vote and and now their capacity to travel and work around europe has been curtailed by older voters that don't want to travel and work in europe and they all showed up at this election and, and delivered the largest ever swing to an opposition in, in modern UK history. So it, if politicians are the ones that want young people to think their vote doesn't count. History makes quite clear that it does. Exactly, exactly. Um, thank you, Richard, so much for um, putting a bit of a firecracker up the young generation, <laughs> which I include as being myself too. Um, we need to get our act together and I very much appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, a wonderful institute doing really important work. Um, and yes, you can check out his piece, Grandfathering the Australian Dream, in the monthly, the latest edition. It's also online if you just Google that one. We can also put up a link on Twitter. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.